First of all, thank you so much for doing this. Where are you right now? I am sitting at my dining room table in my home in Port Hope, Ontario, Canada. It's a tiny town on Lake Ontario. Good times. Very quiet. No summer as of yet, but happy summer solstice. (laughs) Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that very much. Thank you for finally having me on. I was just perusing the the back catalog of Two Riders Sling and Yang. Kevin Van Valkenburg, good friend of mine. Episode 9. Wright Thompson, another good friend of mine, episode 14. Yeah. Tom Junon. Yeah. Former Esquire colleague, episode yeah. 16. Yeah. I'm episode 294. No, I think you're 108 or 109. 108. I have a theory about you and it's, uh, um, oh God, it's a theory I apply to baseball. Okay. Okay. And politics, actually. Ah, politics. Here's the best example. There's a, uh, there's a guy running for president right now in the U.S. named John Hickenlooper. He's the former okay. governor of Colorado. And okay. I believe he is disqualified from winning. I'm actually being serious because his last name is Hickenlooper. I don't think enough yeah, people he, will vote. I think you're right. You can't have right. President Hickenlooper. Yeah. Right. And I feel like in the opposite way, your name, if your name were Majestic Mingo or even Johnny Rocket Boy, I think I would have called you long ago. But I think your name. Yeah. Is, you know, there have been 27 Major League Baseball players alone named Chris Jones. I think I went to high school with a Chris Jones. There are just too many Chris Jones. So when I went to call you the first time to be on episode one, I think I ended up calling my, uh, the kid who hung out in the smoking section of Mail Pack High School. And I just lost interest. Yeah. So yeah, no, that's fair. No, my parents did saddle me with the worst name in the world. Do you ever find out why your parents named you Chris Jones? Actually, yeah. Uh, well, it was an accident. Um, uh, originally I was Matthew, uh, and then my dad apparently was in line at the name registration doohicker and had this realization I would call myself Matt, uh, and he didn't like that. So he suddenly said Christopher, and apparently that was not a name that was uh, even discussed between my parents. Uh, so it was a little cold, a little chilly. A little yeah, chilly in the Jones household for a couple of days, apparently. Uh, or see, he could have come home with his, his new son, Majestic Mingo Jones. Majestic. Like, yeah. I mean, Majestic. I wanted to, I have, I have, uh, I have two sons and I stress very much about their names and I wanted to call one of them Champ. Cause I figured like if your name is Champ Jones, you're going mm-hmm. places, but no, he's Sam instead. But yeah, yeah. It's hard naming people, yeah, giving them names for their whole life. Yeah. Not easy. Actually, I always thought the story that would be interesting. I swear to God. I don't know how you would actually go about it. Maybe twins. If 
you take two people and try to figure out how their name made their life different. You know, like if mm-hmm. my parents, instead of naming me Jeff Perlman, name me Royal Perlman, there's yes. no doubt that people's perceptions of me changes uh, where I go. Change. Like, I think it has a dramatic change on your life. Dramatic. Completely dramatic. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It does. Yeah. I mean, it's funny, like names. So uh, this will sound like um, this in my head. This is a natural segue that'll come off like a plug. Um, But uh, I've recently become a a television uh, writer. And Mm -hmm. one of the fascinating things about that process for me is naming characters, uh, which requires all sorts of legal clearances. and, And it boils down to basically you have to give a character either a name that is so common that no one can justifiably claim that you are using their name or a name that is 100% unique. Like what you can't do, like Jeff Perlman, I imagine would actually be a name that would not fly in a TV legal department because there probably aren't enough of you. Um, Interesting. But like right. a name that's like three or four people, bad news. You can't use it. And that's, that's why you get characters named like David Smith, because then you can't get sued. Right. Or John Hankenlooper. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> it's Hickenlooper, damn it. Hickenlooper. Exactly. Um, actually, you know, that, that was way down the road, but we might as well go there. You are, uh, you're the producer. You've been writing for a, a Netflix series called Away. Um, writing for TV, satisfying or terrible? Delightful. I've enjoyed every minute of it. Um, you, it's very different from what uh, you and I normally do. Are we allowed to talk frankly about uh, your situation? Because I, you know, now that I'm in the world, I know your situation. Oh, yeah. Are you working on it? On the show? Showtime? Showtime? Uh, I, uh, I am not. This is going to sound like bullshit, but I swear to God, it's not. I'm kind of happy not to. Be. In fact, I'm very, I never wanted to. It's just okay. not something that I really want. But, um, you know, I went to the writer's room. I'd never been to a writer's room just recently. And it was weird because your book has exploded on the wall. I thought it was insane and exciting. And there's a part of me that's jealous not to be a part of it. But there's a part of me that never wanted to be in the first place. I don't know. Yes. No, that's fair. That's fair. I was sort of, I mean, it's a very different writing process than what you and I normally do. Like I always thought of writing as extremely solitary and, uh, because I'm a terrible combination of egotistical and insecure. I like, Mm -hmm. I felt like a great amount of possession over stories that I would write. Like they were my stories. Like my name was on the top and my editor and, I would write this thing and, um, and that was it. And TV is not like that at all. I mean, TV is an extremely collaborative, you know, you literally sit in a room with a bunch of other writers and you, you break down stories and you break plots and you go off and you write your episodes. And then, you know, the showrunners go through notes and studio has notes and network has notes. And it's, it's like a much more like you don't own anything. Like you're, you're just part of a big, team that's trying to make something good and so it's it's like a really different process but i actually really enjoyed it like i enjoyed not being lonely for a little while it was fun is it hard to um is it hard to share because i i find writing i mean it's just really selfish obviously and self-absorbed and self-indulgent is it hard to share the load and be okay with other people uh dismissing your ideas or sort of not being interested in your ideas or having what they think is a better idea yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's the first time. So what I've been told is, so this is my first writer's room away is my first room. And what I've been told is that I should never expect it to be so good again. Like it was, <laughs> it was small. There were six or seven of us at any one time. It was extremely friendly. We had delicious lunch delivered every day. 
Um, everyone else was experienced and I wasn't. So in a way it was like being an apprentice and it was a sort of learning on the job. The first time you get a pitch rejected in a writer's room is a bit bracing. You know, how does it like, happen? How does that actually happen? Well, you just come up, people come up with ideas and you, you, uh, you sort of say something and, and I mean, our room was nice. So like no one got slammed, but you know, either your pitch is met with like silence or, <laughs> or like, Oh, that's an interesting idea, which is, you know, code for let's never speak of that again. And, um, uh, and then sometimes you say something and it gets written down on a card and put on the wall and you feel like a hero. Uh, right. and it's like, you just have to get used to the idea. I mean, rejection is part of the writing life anyway. So it's not like I had never been rejected in my life. Um, but, but there's something about doing it like face to face in a group of people. Uh, and definitely the first couple of weeks I was like nervous to say anything dumb. Um, because I felt like I had quite a tenuous, you know, I'm the, the new, I was the new guy and it's, uh, at 45 with a white beard. Uh, it's weird to be the new guy, but it was also like super fun and nice. It was. I loved it. I loved every minute of it. Did you start dropping terms like on fleek just to sound younger? No, no, I want the opposite. I just, I tried <laughs> to be the grumpy old man in the room. I was like, I know people in that office were constantly like, who is that weird dude who's eating right. all the peanut butter cups? Um, <laughs> did you know, this is something else I learned on this job. Uh, lots of valuable information. Trader Joe's peanut butter cups, while small, mm-hmm. like a fingertip, 60 calories each. Uh, I didn't understand why I was gaining 13 pounds a month. And it was because I was just eating peanut butter cups. Yeah, that will happen. Uh, oh my God. They're so bad for you. Um, yeah. but, but the, so good at the same time. So good. And if you eat them <laughs> like one every hour, it doesn't feel like you're doing anything, but then you ate a cheeseburger by the end of the day. It's like, no, I did not try to act young. I did not try to act. My whole career, Jeff Perlman has been, uh, asking people to take pity on me and, um, recognizing that I'm a stupid, flawed man. And I tell people that, and then they hold my hand and help me. And that's, that's what I did here too. Interesting. Are you, um, it's kind of interesting. We're about the same age. We're both in our mid forties and we've both been around now a long time and have had our different experiences writing for magazines and blah, blah, blah. Um, are we dying? I'm actually being serious. Are we dinosaurs? <laughs> are we dinosaurs? I feel like a dinosaur. Um, you do. Yeah, do you? It's like, yeah, kind of, I guess. I mean, it's, 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 I think, you know, there's, there's been a couple of, um, big retirements in Canada's, in Canada's sports writing community. There's been a couple of big retirements over the last week, uh, like real route, like Mount Rushmore guys up here, hockey guys. And, Part of me is like, man, they made it like they're newspaper guys and they made yep. it like they got to the end. And I, I'm like, wow, you're lucky that you started when you did and you finished when you did just when like the cliff is crumbling. Um, but another part of me feels really lucky that I got my, you know, I got 14 years at Esquire and it was like super fun and awesome. It was pretty obvious when that was coming to an end that I needed to find something else to do. And luckily TV showed up. Right. I don't know. I feel like a dinosaur, but I also feel like. I feel like as long as you keep moving, I don't know. I'm like a shark that has no teeth left. But as long as I keep moving, the water, the water runs over my gills. I mean, you're still I just, cracking, I, like you're cranking out books every ten minutes, like yeah. Because just, what are you gonna do? I mean, here's the thing, right? This is the thing that kind of gets me. I wrote a story for the Athletic 
my last story, I was doing columns for the athletic and okay. as kind of a side gig along with writing, uh, our uh, books. And it was pretty good. It wasn't lucrative. I was getting a thousand bucks a column and it was pretty good. Okay. And then they told me that the sub numbers weren't up to par, right? Just across the board, national columns were up to, up to par. And my last story I wrote for them, I pitched a piece about a, there's a local basketball player here in California, this kid, Max Hazard out of UC Irvine. And I pitched a story and I assumed uh, the local rate would apply. The rate would apply and I get my thousand bucks. And cool. It was just a story I wanted to write. And when I filed it, uh, I said, all right, how much did I put in for that? And they said, $250. This was 17, <laughs> 1700 word story, $250. And I just, I don't think the chase is there anymore. Like part of it all was the chase, right? It was, I'm going to pitch this story to ESPN or Esquire, or the New York times magazine or the New York times or the Washington post or sports illustrated. And I don't, it's not that I don't have the energy for the, for the chase. I don't see the payoff of the chase. Mm-hmm. And I just find yeah. that kind of depressing. Yeah, I think it happened. Like, oh man, I feel like I'm lying down on a therapist couch. Um, <laughs> go ahead. Like, well, I remember having debates with people. Like, is, do writers, is there a peak? Like, is there a natural peak for writers? And at the time, I was probably 30 at the time when I was having this conversation. I remember thinking it was probably like 36. Where you're <laughs> now it's you're 46 young, and then 56. Well, yeah. Oh no, man. I think I was right. Like, oh. I think I, it's like for a certain kind of writing for that, like driven what you're talking about, the chase, because you get 36, you have enough experience that you know what you're doing, but you're not tired. You know, you're not completely like busted up. And, um, and I, you know, I was reading, it was a bit like, like staring into the sun, but, uh, in, there was a story about Rick Riley in the Washington post recently oh, about his sort just of post. bring this up. Right. Yeah. And he, Basically, he sort of said, I got tired, like, <laughs> like right. and I, and I was sort of going, yeah, I get that, buddy. <laughs> like, you yep. get tired, like you, you're writing columns and you're writing stories and it's new ideas. And, and at some point you kind of go, and toward my last years at Esquire and all like credit and um, love to like colleagues who have done this for 40 years. But I was like, okay, do I just keep doing this? Like, is this what I do now forever? And, um, yeah, I started having all those midlife questions about like, okay, I guess that's, that's a pretty good life. Like I wouldn't be sad with that life. Um, but, but I did wonder like, okay, am I, is this where I, is this, this, this is me now. This is me forever. Like I just didn't know how to, how to keep going. And I don't know. It's a funny, it's a funny midlife thing that happened. But then you have other guys, John McPhee, who's, I don't know, a thousand years old and he still reports the hell out of things and, writes these perfect stories. And it's, so everyone's different. I think I, I would say that I got a little bit tired and I wanted to do something else. And TV writing is like, it's like playing. It's like using the same muscles to play a different sport. That's how I would describe it. And right. And it was, it came at the right time for me. See, I thought, um, it's interesting just with Riley. I know Rick fairly well. And, uh, mm-hmm. when he was getting slammed, for, you know, recycling lines and blah, blah, blah. And, and mm-hmm. it did feel a little bit like watching Muhammad Ali fight Trevor Burbick at the end, you know, where, where it was just this guy who was kind of mailing it in. But I always thought the whole time, like he's just bored of doing it. Like it's not, yeah. it's not even 
laziness so much as boredom. And he, I think he said in that piece, that Washington Times piece, like Washington Post piece, how many, you see the masters for the 10th time. It's amazing. It's great. The 15th time. It's still really good. The 20th time. Eh. And by the 25th yeah. time you've watched a stupid golf tournament. It's just a golf tournament. Yeah. And you sound like an absolute dickhead to someone who hasn't been there once. That's yeah. the problem too. You, you, you sound like an ingrate. Um, and there are worse ways. There are, in fact, almost every other way to make a living is worse than, yes. than writing about sports. Like, it's funny. I was driving, I was, I was, I, was, I coached my kid's soccer team. I coached my kid's soccer. We were driving back from a game last night and he was asking about another a mom on the, a, who's a, a lawyer and he's 11. He was like, what's a lawyer? And so, you know, actually explaining what a lawyer is is kind of hard. So I explained what a lawyer is and he goes like, so no offense, but her job's important and your job's like not that important, right? <laughs> <laughs> You're like, like, yep. Yeah, kind of true. Yeah, yeah. Like, I, I spent a lot of time just watching sports to tell people what happened. Um, and it's like, it's like, every day you get to do it. It's just a hilarious joke on the universe. But, but yep. at the same time, like, you do get worn out. And Rick, like, that back page column for Sports Illustrated. Yep. Like, that just would have been a grind. Like, you say, what, what wonderful profile and, good money and yes all true but producing that every week woof i was reading um because you did uh years and years ago you did the quaz q a for my website you were like the i was very person. early to the quad you'll note you'll note that i was like quaz number six or I think something 19, I no on. i think you were 19 you were 19th quaz and i'm up to 400 and something so uh I've, i think i stole that idea from you by the way because you did a used the, to do a q a on your website with writers that's I true five I, for uh, writing yeah yeah so i i robbed that but um there was a point I asked you long, long ago, you kind of ripped Jason Whitlock and, and Jason, Whit Jason Whitlock is, is maybe my least favorite media member in the history of sports media. Um, yes. And, and the thing I always think about guys like Whitlock, like Skip Bayless, like Stephen A. Smith, I used to think this about Chris Berman is I used to think, do you not have kids? Like, how can this all be so important to you that every day you come in with this fire? about mm. whether LeBron is going to sign with whoever or like that can't be real. Can it? I mean, it, it wouldn't be real for me. Like I don't <laughs> care about sports that much. And it's like, maybe they do everything I've heard about people like that is that they do care that deeply. Um, Which is crazy. Maybe, maybe they do like it's and, and people care. And what, I mean, like one of the things I love the most is when people are obsessed with stupid things. Like I love people who are absolute freak shows over the most arcane, ridiculous. I was reading a story about, uh, Brooke Jarvis has a little story in the New York times today about giant squids. And there's stories of obsession with giant squids. Like people spend their lives pursuing giant squids. And I love that. It's like one of my favorite things. So I'm hesitant to knock someone if their giant squid is sports. Like that's okay. Like, that's interesting. Like they're allowed to, they're allowed to love something outside of themselves that much. Like, and I can't judge them for that. I love some stupid things too, but I could not get that worked up. I, I think that's why I wasn't a very good sports columnist is because I just didn't care. I care about sports and I care about people. I don't care about like where someone signs or who gets drafted. And I'm certainly not going to get angry about it. You know, I get angry about other things, but like, no, I'm not going to get angry about that. And so it's, yeah, I just didn't have enough passion for that kind of thing. I think right. those guys do, do maybe, maybe they don't, maybe it's all big one giant hustle. 
and, and, and wear marks, but I feel like those guys do care about it. It'd be hard to act. Man, if they don't care, like, they're good actors. Yeah. <laughs> but I was gonna, uh, I was gonna start by asking you something totally random, but that's kind of how this podcast goes. So I am a sellout every now and then. And I wrote a, uh, every now and then CNN.com calls because I have an editor there who I'm friendly with. And would you write a column about this? And I'll, I'll take an hour and I'll write a column. And I wrote a column yesterday about, um, I don't know if you saw the fight between little league parents in Colorado last week, but there was, Oh, I sure did. Yeah. I did yeah. see that. So, and I am, um, I hate little league baseball with all my passion. I hate little league baseball. And the day my son okay. stopped playing little league baseball was a great day in, in the life of in my the wife. Household? Yeah. I can't stand it. So I wrote this. Cause so like it's, it's Jason Whitlock and little league baseball. Okay. I'm just making a list of things you hate. Yeah, pretty much. And, um, <laughs> and I'd say, I'd, I'd also say eighties music. Those are my big three. Oh, not a fan of eighties. Yeah. Okay. All right. Sorry. Okay. Except for Hall and Oaks. Um, <laughs> so, all right. So. I write this column about literally baseball and we had a neighbor, a very good friend of mine named Robin Webb, long story. And she just went through this nightmare with literally baseball. And she gave me this quote. She was there for the Las Vegas shooting. She was in the crowd when the Las Vegas shooting happened. And she gave me a quote where she said, I would rather go through that night in Vegas three more times than go through what we've gone through with literally baseball. Wow. Okay. Right. Okay. Okay. They took the quote out of the column. They just took it out. Well, and, Wait, and then with, and it was her permission and the context was there and she explained everything she'd gone through and blah, blah, blah. And then, all right. And the other thing was I ended the column. This is my last, I'm not saying this is, you know, brilliant in any way, shape or form. I just want to say, but the end of my column was, um, truly that's what it's come to in 2019. We try to fool ourselves to talk of lessons learned about teamwork and camaraderie and persistence. We tell our sons and daughters that baseball builds character and time in the field will result in a better human. We offer up the 55-year-old Little League pledge, pretending all the while that it's outdated ethos still applies. Then we watch as a bunch of idiot adults beat the snot out of one another. And we're reminded of the harsh truth that organized youth baseball, a sliver of Americana once equated with the flag and apple pie, has been corrupted forever. Okay. I get an email from my uh, my editor. And she's like, yeah, so I think I think we need to add, maybe can we just add something at the end, maybe like a last paragraph about what your advice would be to parents, right? So I have this ending hanging there forever. And then now it ends with, and that now it ends with me saying what to do, go old school, find some neighborhood kids, grab some gloves, bats, and balls, drop them off at the nearby park and take the best step you can as a parent and leave. So, which I wrote on my phone outside of an in and out burger while dropping my <laughs> daughter off at her. Like, and I used to, 20 years ago, I would have lost my shit. I would have been this, baby and i would have lost my shit and this time i was like eh, okay all right all right next. <laughs> so, all right that's fine and then the funny thing is jeff letter emails love the column jeff best column we've ever written you're like what are you talking about this is dog shit what am i supposed to do here chris oh there's so many things to go from here first of all i want to say the hall and oats exception is a great title for something yeah totally is. i love hall and <laughs> but the fact that they're your one 80s music exception I, I got stuck on that for a little while i hate all 80s music except for hall and oates is like hey man don't sleep on many like, uh, there's, so, there's something so american psycho about that is fact yeah uh the, um uh you know i always 
I was talking, I'm not going to name him, but I was having an email exchange with a friend of mine, a writer, who's much more of an artist than me. He's, he's very, like, I was talking to my girlfriend last night about him, because I was like, man, I don't think I know that many people who don't care about money. Like, who really don't make any decisions based on money. And this guy does not make any decision based on money, which is, like, such a weird thing for me. Like, I... I like money and I think about it and I do things for money. And when it comes to like editing and stuff like that, I always rolled over. I never, I've never had a fight with an editor. I don't think. Wow. How's that? Possible? Cause I'm like, because it's their job. And I'm, a, I'm my, my, my job is to serve them. And so it's like, I, I don't know. I always viewed it as a much more like commercial enterprise than I think a lot of writers do where I'm like, okay, like this is, what do you want? I'll do that. And that's because you're paying me money. It's like there's, there's, there's that great line in Mad Men where I think, uh, Peggy's talking to Don Draper and goes, you never say thank you. And he goes, that's what the money's for. And like, that's how I always viewed, like, I'm doing this for money. It's a job. So I'm going to deliver the thing that you want me to deliver. I mean, I'm not going to write something that I'm going to be ashamed about for my whole life, but like, I'm going to do what you want me to do, like, most of the time. So that, that, like, when you're talking about 20 years ago and you, we're more of a fighter about these things. Like I never had that phase. So it's like what you did now is what I would have done when I was 25. Like it, 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 I can see how, I can see how you've gone on a journey and you feel like, Ooh, I'm a different person than I was 20 years ago. But what you did in the in and out burger, I hope you got a burger while you're at it. Um, it's what I did like all my life. So it's like, I don't, I don't really, that's interesting. I have no, I, I don't know what to say about it. I'm like, well, yeah, no, it's a job. job. Like if you're, if you're, if you're going to a place and saying, please give me money for this. Like if, 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 if I'm selling you food and you go, you know, I don't want tomato on it. Then you go, sorry, you're having tomato. Like you'd be really upset. Like, and I feel like writing, I don't know. If you're writing on your own for no money, you can write whatever the hell you want. But as soon as you start asking someone for money for it, you're entering a kind of contractual agreement where you're going to provide something that they want. I don't know. Wait, so let me ask you, like, we, when you were writing these stories for Esquire, um, I literally have the things that carried him in front of me here in 2008. Um, how much of, you know, generally, how much of the original story that you handed in, how much of it was being edited hard? I don't know what the Esquire editing process was like compared to the SIO oh. process. Esquire was pretty intense. Like, I mean, the nice thing about the process at Esquire is that, so I had an editor, Peter, uh, and he was always my editor. So, and no one else edited. It wasn't, I don't know what the play, like, there wasn't like team edits. You know, sometimes you just send a story somewhere and it ends up going through. Sure. Oh, I am remember, now I am remembering one time I did kickback about an edit where I, it wasn't at Esquire somewhere else where I want to take my name off it and they restored it to what it was. Uh, That's awesome. And then it, and then it Wait, appeared in sports writing. Sidebar, what happened? Uh, I had some very late hands on a story um, that made it worse. And, and, I, and for no reason. And it was like midnight going to press. And I was like, what happened here? And I talked to my editor and he was like, I got top edited. And I was like, but this isn't good. Like, it's bad. Like it's demonstrably bad. Uh, and I was really tired. I was in Los Angeles on some assignment, middle of the night. Uh, and I was like, take my name off it. I don't want it. And he sneaked back in and changed it all back. And then I went to press. 
And then I got into Best American Sports Writing, which was, what was like, that story about. Valid. Well, then you're going to know where it was. Oh, Let's return to this. Let me think about this for a second. All right. Um, uh, but Esquire was like me and Peter and we would work on every story together. And Peter was such a good editor that I never questioned anything. And there'd be times when it would hurt, like things that carried them. I mean, that was kind of my fault. So things that a standard feature at Esquire was around 6,000 words. Like that was a sort of a big meaty feature. Mm -hmm. Uh, and things that carried them. I delivered 22,000, which you're not supposed to do. You should never do that. That's it's too basically much. a small book. It's a small book. Uh, and basically you're saying like, kill every other story in your magazine for me. Like it's a very dick swingy kind of move, but I just got so obsessed with that story. And I warned Peter, I was like, you know, it's, it's not going to be six. It's going to be like, and then he's like 10. And I was like, maybe 10. And I was like, it's not going to be 10. And he was like, just write it. And then we'll see what happens. So they ran it at 17,000, which is a huge privilege. Like, that's amazing. But that meant cutting 5,000 words that I had worked really hard on. Um, and there was a scene. And Peter was right. He was right. It had to be cut. But there was a scene of Joey, the, the service that the soldiers back in Iraq had for Joey. Mm -hmm. uh, and it had taken me a long time to get that scene because the soldiers were sort of reluctant to talk about it. And it was like the warrior's funeral that happened back in Baghdad at the base. And it was sort of out of context because every other scene had Joey in it. Uh, and that scene, Joey's away. Joey's back in America. Um, and so when you have to cut, you know, it was an obvious cut. So it was whatever that scene was, 1,500 words, 2,000 words. And I still remember, you know, dragging the cursor across it, blocking it out and hitting delete and just being like, it felt like a punch. Yeah. It was just like, oh, um, but he was right. And also, man, 17,000 words is a lot of words. Like, I can't complain. So that's like, that's an example where I'm like, yeah, sometimes it's stung, but I would never kick back about it. Um, like there are lines and stories I still remember getting caught and, and at the time being like, oh man, I really like that line. Um, and then realizing afterwards that Peter was always right. Peter was always right. So I never thought about it. I guess, I guess that's part of my privilege about, you know, saying I never fought with editors. I've been almost uniformly lucky and always having really good editors. And then, right. and then it's, then it's a faith-based process. Then it's like, you and I will try to make something good together and, and I will deliver my best and you will deliver your best. And hopefully we come out with something. Um, that's how I always viewed it. I always viewed it as like, uh, your job is to edit. And that's a very different job from writing. And I'm assuming you're good at it. And Peter was very, very good at it. So I feel like one thing I lacked as a younger writer that I, I came to understand is when I was a younger writer, I had this thing where it'd be like, you can't take that sentence out that sentence, blah, 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 blah. And it's taken out. And it's almost like when you give a shirt to goodwill and it's a shirt, you really debate, should I give this shirt to goodwill? I've had this shirt for 15 years. I fucking love this shirt. And then you mm -hmm. can't even remember 10 minutes later, which shirt it was like everything takes on this amazing importance when it is in front of you on a screen. And then once it's deleted, you're kind of like, oh, wait, what was that? I don't even, yeah. I, don't, I don't even remember what that was. Well, I, I, don't even must, yeah. I don't, it's like a wedding, how people get all bent out of shape about mistakes that happen at weddings. Well, that didn't go the way it was supposed to. No one watching the wedding knows that it didn't go right. <laughs> they, they all think, oh, that was fun. I had an open bar. Good time. Like, you know, it's like a, the other thing that I've, I found when I was young is I would think of stories 
I'd be like, oh, that, that's a good story. And that's a bad story. And then you go back and you read them both like five years later and you go, those are both fairly similar stories. Like right. those, you know, they're like a little different, but they're not. It's, it's funny how like time sort of like, you just don't feel the same way about things, but that, that's you fighting over lines and stuff. Never had it. Do you get this? You get this one. So I am, I'm working on a book now and I have a, uh, are you, are you working on a book just for exchange? <laughs> What's, uh, this is book number. You've almost as many books as Fling and Yang episodes, but yeah, no, I have no life, man. I have no I, life. Dude, I am shocked that you're working on a book. Holy you? moly. Gotta Crazy. do something. Hey, brother's gotta eat. Like you said, money. Yeah. Um, yeah, it does. but I actually enjoy it. I do enjoy it. But, um, you know, I, I write these chapters and I have a friend of mine who's been sort of a, my primary reader for years and it's a great guy named Michael Lewis, not Moneyball Michael Lewis. And I'll send no, off I know, the I know, that, I know what Michael Lewis are talking about. I know oh, you do? Twitter. Oh, yeah, he's a huge admirer of yours. Um, and he, well, he's, like a, he, he's an excellent writer. And he, um, he's, he's this guy who's, I've just, I went to Delaware with him. We've been friends for years. And I'll send him these chapters and I'll think to myself, this chapter, this sucks. This is just the worst fucking drivel, blah, blah, blah. And he'll write back and he'll say, man, I love this chapter. And then all of a sudden I'm like, oh, maybe it wasn't that bad. Like I am so pathetically easily swayable on what's good and what's bad. That all I need is one or two people to tell me it's good. And I'm like, oh, maybe it's not so bad. Like, that's how pathetic I am. Just a little bit of validation. No, we're all praise driven. I'm built the opposite where a thousand people can say something nice. and Someone says something mean and I'll, I'll be like, oh, it sucks. And yeah, like, you're still on Twitter. Yeah, not like I used to. No, you know what happened? It was like some shit happened in my real life. Yeah. Uh, and, and then I was like, I was like, okay, I can, I'm now bulletproof. Like nothing can hurt me now. Uh, and it changed everything. The, the, Twitter becomes really important and you get really angry about things when the rest of your life is so good that you have nothing to worry about. Like, uh, as soon as like some dramatic shit happens in your real life, you kind of go, ah, this mean tweet. Right. <laughs> like, I, I can, I can deal now. It's just right. different. It's just, yeah, I just perceive things differently. Yeah, this right. this whole this 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 episode's a little bit about like aging and maturity and the passage of time and yeah, kind of like nice. that. Yeah, yeah, um, me too. You wrote a, a uh, yeah, you know, um, you wrote a. Uh, I guess we are old. If this is what we're talking about. It's like our we're writing our own eulogies here. Oh God, I look like Wilford Brimley, man. Like, like, holy crap! Like people talk about how Wilford Brimley in Cocoon is the same age as like Tom Cruise now. Tom Cruise, yeah. And I'm definitely Wilford Brimley. Like I. Well, then we can say you look like Tom Cruise. No, no, I, I look like Tom Cruise if some really bad shit happened and he got hit by a bus. That's what I look like. No, I tell people I'm 45 and their mouth drops open because they're surprised I'm not 80. But you know those uh, those uh, peanut butter cups from Trader Joe's are freaking good. Oh, they're, they're so just good. They're just really and they were good. free. They were free. I could just eat them I all mean. I wanted. What are you going to do? Before we continue with Two Riders Singing Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman. I'm here with my daughter, Casey. And we're going to play Rapid Fire. You ready? I guess so. Favorite baseball player? John Rocker. Favorite journalist? Skip Bayless. The winner of the 2020 election will be? Donald Trump, our Lord and Savior. Wait, why are you doing this to me? Because your podcast is sponsored by 503 Sports, king of throwback sports merchandise. And even though I visit 503-sports.com all the time, you still haven't gotten me the Miami Mana t-shirt I wanted. I, I bought it for your brother. Where can I find myself a good John Feinstein book? 
you wrote a piece for Esquire a bunch of years ago, uh, sort of about depression. And you wrote something. I read it last night and I was just like, ah, yes, 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 yes. Um, you know, I just come off, uh, I just come out of writing what remains the most important story of my life, things that carried him about how a soldier's body gets back from Iraq. After working on it for so many months, I lost my aim without it, coupled with the weight of so many visits to military morgues and grief, uh, heavy kitchens. A book that I wrote, the same paperback I was supposed to go to San Francisco to promote that June, hadn't been a failure exactly, but it wasn't what I'd hoped it would be because nothing much was anymore. My first signing had been in a Houston bulk store. They sat me next to huge bottles of ketchup. First of all, I've been there. I signed oh. in the same store. Um, I find oh. it really interesting. The, the weird relief when you're done with something. And then the, it almost feels like your best friend moved to Tulsa. It's a weird phenomenon. Yeah. yeah. You go through that every time or just certain stories? Uh, certain stories. I mean, I didn't, I never feel that way. like if I had to do a celebrity story or a cover up footy match, like I don't, I don't feel a lot of grief about it. Um, but it's, it's, if that story was a very special story to me, like I worked really hard on it and it, and it became like, uh, it was an obsession. And, and, and then when it was gone, I mean, one of the things I love about the writing life is sort of this unpredictability. Like I really like the idea that. I don't have a schedule and I like the idea that the phone might ring with a new opportunity and I'm suddenly on a plane going somewhere. Um, mm-hmm. but then there are periods like when you're working on a story like that. So I worked on that story at guess where I gave me eight months to work on that story. And I knew every day wow. what I was going to be doing. And it was one of the few times in my life where I had like advanced knowledge of my life, like where I knew what I was going to be doing the next month and the next month and the next month. And in a way, I kind of like that too. So it was like this twin thing of really liking the work, but also or really being invested in the work and also just knowing, having like a little bit of a schedule. Uh, and I kind of like both. And then when it was gone, I didn't have the work. And also all of a sudden that day, I was like, well, what do I do now? And I knew, and this is, it's, it's a terrible knowledge to have, Jeff, but I, like I knew it and I was right. Like I knew it was the best thing I'd ever do. And, and people would be like, no, no, you're going to, no, it was the, it's the best thing I'll ever do. And, um, and it's proved to be the, you know, that, and it's, and it's like, that's a tough thing to know. You know, it's, it's like, it's, it's not many people know their peak in the moment that they're peaking. Um, but I knew, and it's, and it's, well, how do you get to do the next thing now when you know it's not going to be as good? So that's what that, that whole experience was. It was very, Plus, the way I was just in a bad chemical place where things just looked bad. And, um, yeah, it was a heavy time. So it's funny. You asked me last night, uh, uh, inside the kitchen here, you asked me like what my favorite stories are. Like I have a hard time putting that story on that list because it's the best thing I've done. I'm very proud of it. Um, but it's hard for me to use like a word like favorite or like with it because it was a, not a great time in my life. So it's like, I associate stories with sort of periods of time. Um, and that one was just so not pleasant that, um, that I think of that story and I sort of can't really bring myself to think about it that much because I kind of go, that was a bad time. Hollow notes. You know what I mean? Like I try to just like yeah. get out of it. So it's a funny, I don't know. It's funny how I associate stories less with like the writing and more like, where was I in my life? And that was a happy time. I like that story. Like it's, I don't know. I'm rambling. You know what's interesting? 
No, no, no. I so the uh, two uh, the two episodes I recorded this week are you and there's a uh, there's a writer for the Athletic who covers the Texas Rangers named Levi Weaver, and it's this crazy, crazy story where um, he uh, he was this touring musician with a really good career going on, and when he suffers from depression, and I asked okay. him. And and he just gave up. He hasn't he has not touched his guitar in four years. Like he was just really. It's the weirdest thing. I was I was googling him trying to find the writer, and I kept finding this musician. And then I realized they were the same person. It was a super tribute. And he basically stopped playing four years ago. Put down his guitar. Just didn't want to do it anymore. And he talked about writing when he was really sort of battling depression. And some of the best stuff he wrote was at his lowest emotional points. And I wonder, mm-hmm. does that, does that apply? Do you, is, can there actually, is there a correlation in any way, shape or form between quality of writing and how you are emotionally feeling? And, and maybe not in the obvious way where I'm feeling great. So what I'm writing is great. Is, is there ever a, an assistance in feeling shitty? So the, this for me is a very like sensitive topic. Uh, mm-hmm. so I'm going to get like slightly serious here. Um, so we're not I talking think, hollow notes, just to be clear. We're not talking hollow notes. All the hollow notes. I recognize the greatness of Hall and Oates, I think. Um, yeah, more Hall than Oates. Poor Oates. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Oates did bring the better aesthetic to the band uh, with the mustache. And the Wait, I just want to tell you, Chris, years ago, I'm a huge Hall and Oates fan, I must admit, and years, years ago, Oates was performing solo <laughs> near where we lived. So I convinced, I convinced the wife to go. It was in a converted elementary school auditorium that held about 200 people, and it was not sold out. Oh, oh, that's harsh. You know, as anyway, we talk about names, though, Hall, it's a good thing that Hall met Oates. Like, what if Hank and Looper met Oates? Hank and Looper and Oates? <laughs> not the same. And, Doesn't work. And a guy named John Oates. I want to be a rock star. Your name's John Oates. Like, it's not going to happen for you. But you meet Hall. Yeah. You meet Daryl Hall. It's all money. Now you're Hall and Oates. You're not Daryl and John. Yeah. And you're not Oates and Hall. Terrible. No, someone got a be great Hall decision there. Some, yeah, some, they did. at some point, someone was hit by lightning and that all worked out for both of them. Daryl Hall without John O's. Not the same. Doesn't work. I agree. Of course, Art Garfunkel does not hold up to this theory. Uh, the, the depression. So I always worry that young writers think that they have to be crazy to be good writers. And especially young male writers, like a lot of the, the go-to idols of young male writers were mental cases, you know, like Hemingway or F. Scott Fitzgerald or J.D. Salinger or Hunter S. Thompson. Like the people you're supposed to use as your spirit guides were fucked up people, bad people who did bad things to other people and bad things to themselves. And I'm always worried. And I went through that phase. Like when I was a young newspaper writer, like I read the shit ton out of Hemingway and I was like, I'm going to go to Havana. And I did. And I'm going to run with the bulls. And I did. And I just... I went through this like weird period of Hemingway, you know, emulation and anyone who reads my stuff would be like, well, that guy reads a lot of Hemingway. And it's like, but he was a bad person. He was fundamentally flawed and fucked up and he mm-hmm. fucking killed himself. Like that's not who you want as your spirit guide. And it's, and it's, so I'm, I'm loath to talk about this stuff in any kind of way that celebrates being sad because being sad sucks. Like it's not fun. It's, bad for you it's really hard on people who love you um it's better if you're happy like it's it's just fundamentally better if you're happy um but it does 
like if I'm being honest, there are periods of your life when when you're really feeling things that I think make you a better understander of the human condition. Like that's what I would say is that when I've been down, like it's because I feel things deeply and like little things bother me. And, uh, and I know I'm in a bad place when I start getting upset about like inconsequential things. But when you're like that, when you're like a live wire, it's a pretty good time to try to get to understand people because you feel everything. Like you're very in tune like with how other people are feeling and you like, I feel like vibes off people. And, and, and like when I understand, like when I'm out in the universe that way, like when I'm just exposed, like that's, that's when I do some good stuff. Like Roger Ebert's another one of my better stories. I was in Shit's Creek when I went into Roger Ebert and, uh, and I, here I am sitting and I, it was perversely helpful because there I sat next to this man who cancer took away his ability to eat, drink and talk. And all of a sudden you're like, well, I should really stop bitching about my situation. Um, but like, I think part of the reason that I really felt like I could understand Roger is because how I was in that moment, like I was, I was open, I was exposed, all my skin had been pulled off. And it's like, so, so my answer to your question is, Yes, if I'm being honest, there are times in your life when your emotional state comes out on the page. And that's that's just writing. That's like sometimes you feel it more than other days. And I listen to music that tries to get me in a mood. Like if I'm writing a particular scene, I'll listen to a song that's emotional. Or if I want it to be happy, I'll listen to a bouncy song. And like, it's just, it's, I think it's very natural that your feelings translate into the words that you're writing. Like that just makes perfect sense to me. But there's a cost to that. And I would never like, glorify that i would never be like oh you've got to you've got to feel that way in order to be a good writer i think it'll i think sometimes it works for you but i couldn't possibly in good conscience recommend feeling like that because it's 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 deeply unpleasant and you don't have to be a nutter to be a good writer there's lots of good writers who are just happy well-adjusted people like you and i both know plenty of writers who are just delighted with life and that's awesome for them uh i think you and i both occasionally have spells where we're not like that and it comes out in weird ways on the internet and it comes out in our writing and it that's just that's just how we're built i wouldn't recommend feeling that way no i would it's funny whenever i'm uh whenever i'm deep in a book my out something is killing me right uh what's that bump on my arm why is my heart beating fast Oh, right. Right now, I gotta go to a doctor. I'm being, you know, that my, my thing has always been health anxiety and, and it, it, it's, I'm pretty good about it now in my day to day existence. And then I'll always, at some point I'll say to my wife, I don't know. This seems different. Why? Blah, blah, blah. And you're writing a book. No, I'm telling you, this one's different. You're writing a book. I'm telling you, this is different. Well, go to the doctor. And everybody I go to the doctor. No, it's right. It's, it's nothing. Oh, okay. Like, okay. Like clockwork every time I'm writing a book. It's just how the anxiety surfaces, I guess. Yeah, it sucks. I don't enjoy it. No, it sucks. That's the thing. That's the thing. But it's also part of the. So it's such a hard question because I I have done some of my best work while I've been clinically depressed. Uh, would I make that trade? Like if I never wrote a good thing again and could I be happy forever? Like, great. I'll be a car salesman as long as I get to be happy forever. Like, you know, I don't. It's. So that's what I mean by it. It's a very hard thing to talk about. I, I never want young people 
especially to think that they have to be depressed. Like it's to fight tooth and nail not to be that. I know it's impossible, but like fight not to be that. Uh, it's more important than whatever piece of writing you're doing at the time. So does going into a writer's room and eating Reese's cups and or Trader Joe cups and having sort of a community that you see and deal with and see this progress together, um, is that a happier way to live than being isolated in an office writing 17,000 words? My experience of TV writing and TV writers is that they are the happiest people on earth. Uh, That's amazing. And why shouldn't they be? <laughs> they, they, this was my, this was my work week. I, I, our office was in Santa Monica, California. Um, I decided this might be my one shot at being a Californian TV writer. So I rented a house that was two blocks from the beach. Yeah. Thanks for uh, calling, did, by the way. You give me shit. Oh, First thing you do is give me shit about, uh, it's being well, cause you hadn't had me. Yeah. I was oh, like, oh, I guess Jeff doesn't like me. <laughs> Jeez. Can't call him. He'll, he'll think I'm using him <laughs> to get on. <laughs> it's mediocre just, podcast. Yeah. <laughs> he'll be like, he'll be like, man, he just wants to get on Yang. I don't want to. Uh, he's going to talk about depression. <laughs> what blanket? Yeah. Right. Um, you asked. God damn it. Uh, so I, I would get up in the morning. I had to be at work at 10. I, I would get a, I would get a coffee from Dogtown Coffee. I would go down and look at the ocean. The Pacific Ocean, which is the best yeah. of the oceans. And the then best. I would, I would then, uh, I was one of the few Los Angelinos who would take the public transit. I would take a 10 minute train ride to my office. I would walk in. Uh, there would be a bowl of berries sitting on a table. We'd assemble at 10 o'clock, a group of lovely people who I enjoyed so much, smart, fun, delighted, smiling. We'd sit there. Uh, for a couple hours, we'd talk about a TV show. We'd make shit up about people who aren't real. And then we would get lunch. Every day there'd be a different lunch that we could order. Uh, we would eat lunch and then we would work some more until five o'clock. And, and then we would go home and do other things. And we did that Monday to Friday. And it was just the most lovely, wonderful. It was the best. I, I like some of the people in that room have become like like some of my best friends in life, and it was just and and you get paid, you get paid stupid money. Like you didn't pay for lunch, did you? Oh Christ! Of course we didn't pay for lunch. You don't pay for anything. Rich people don't pay for anything. That's the amazing thing about Hollywood. Rich people don't pay for yeah. shit. The people with the most money get given everything. Uh, and it's, and it's, it's, it's obscene, but if you're part of it, great. And it's like, it's, it's, it was just, it was ridiculous. It was like the most fun. And then I got to write my first episode. I got paid to write a screenplay. I wrote an episode of television. Uh, a, a famous, a famous actor named Hillary Swank is gonna, is gonna give a speech that I wrote and it's gonna be on Netflix. And I got paid. That's amazing. And I ate, and I ate all the peanut butter cups. God, it was the best deal ever. Cause those Trader Joe peanut butter cups are freaking good. There was a They're new tub. Good. There was a, there was a, there was a piece of paper on our fridge in the kitchen that was like, Hey, what do you want us to get today? And I would write peanut butter cups. <laughs> and they From would Trader show Joe's. up. They would just show up every day. Milk chocolate and dark chocolate. 
every day. And you're like, how is it being a TV writer? It's great. <laughs> you start this conversation by being like Showtime. Yeah. Yeah. My book got sold. It's being made by very famous people into a television program on HBO, quite a, quite a, a network known for its quality programming. I don't want to be a part of that. Oh, Jeff Roman, I'm like, up. wait, wait, Chris, I just want to know. I'm not joking about this. I'm doing a book right now about the 96 to 04 Laker dynasty, Shaq Kobe. I've spent the past three fucking days rewinding and analyzing clips from the 2002 conference finals between the Kings and the Lakers in the corner of a Starbucks, just begging that someone gives me a free refill. Like, I made, made the a wrong terrible mistake. Life. Oh, oh my oh. God. I don't want to judge anybody's choices because we're all individuals. Yep. The universe is a big place. Everyone's got to be different. You fucked up. Yeah, I think I did. I, think I, did. <laughs> I, you know, when I was in the writer's room, when I went to the writer's room, I got free lunch. Um, they all looked really happy. It was an interesting group of people, but I got to say I was there for about two hours and then I got the old, you know, this one, the old, all right, well, you know, that yeah. transition. When you're yeah. like, oh, I guess it's time for me to leave this cloud. Time for me to go. And go back. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. You just got a taste. You got a little whisper of what yeah. it's like. Oh, my God. Every day I went there, I was like, this is ridiculous. And because I didn't know what I was doing, I felt like part of my job was to be happy. Like, I felt like, you know, if I can't contribute anything, at least I can just be a good, good force in the room. And, it, yeah. and, and, and starting my day by looking at the Pacific Ocean, and going in with the headspace, like, you need to, you need to be joyful. Look at this. Like, God, it was one of the happiest times of my life. It was amazing. So yeah. good. I was so sad when it ended. Like, we're done writing. You know, you would, gonna, gonna start shooting, but like, you would, uh, um, sad. You would appreciate this is the truth. We moved to Southern California because I was sitting in New, we were li- I live from New York and every winter I'd be writing and I'd be just freezing my ass off looking at the gray skies miserable. And I kind of asked myself, and then my wife agreed to go along with it. Like, why would you voluntarily, when you don't have to, be miserable for five months? Like, why do I have to write in yeah. gray when I can write you by don't. the Pacific Ocean and it's 70 degrees? You know, you know? One of the, no one likes to say this because people get angry. New York is a shithole. New, New York is a fun place <laughs> to visit. I wouldn't live there if you put a gun to my head. And everyone thinks L.A. is a dungeon. And L.A. I love L.A. It's a great American city. Like, you know, I don't know. There's a, there's a Toronto col- friend of mine, Bruce Arthur, who's a columnist in Toronto. Mm-hmm. And he was talking about moving to LA and he was asking me how I liked it. And I was like, it's amazing. He goes, what's good about it? And I said, the weather, the ocean and the food. It's yep. the best eating city in America. Yep. And he goes, he goes, is that it? And I was like, Bruce, <laughs> that's everything. That's everything. That's yep. your whole life. If those three things are in your life, Sunny skies and ocean and a delicious burrito. Jesus, you won. Yeah. And it's actually a liberal city and it's environmentally, you know, like the whole. Yeah, I agree. Everything's better about it. Yeah. It's got bad traffic, but you can live your life without traffic. You can plan your life differently. Where do you live in in the area? I live in Orange County. So I live uh, near Laguna Beach, which is. I do most of my writing now. I drive down to Laguna Beach. There's a little coffee shop there that overlooks the Pacific. They have these great acai bowls. You know, oh, I sound so, you know, Southern Cal, but it's, you get an iced coffee, eating your bowl, you're overlooking the Pacific. I don't know. I actually write better when I'm in a good mood. 
you know, I feel better about what I'm doing when I'm going to even if the stuff is crap, I at least feel better about it at the end of the day. This is what, this is what I was trying to explain in that long, terrible, it's better to be happy. If that's yep. your choice, be happy. Like that's like, oh, the food. I still remember lunches. I'd be like, it took me a while to get into LA. Like mm-hmm. I was very aware of the fact that I wasn't from there and I didn't want to become like, yeah, like that stereotype of like the LA, whatever. And, um, and we get these menus and I'd look at these menus and there'd be ingredients. I wouldn't, I'd be like forbidden rice with quail egg. And what the, what is this shit? Like, can I have a hamburger? Like, what is this shit? And people, someone like Andrew, my buddy would be sitting next to me and he'd, he'd go, no, no, the forbidden rice is really good. Get it with a, Get it with extra whatever. And I'd be like, okay. And then it would come and I'd be like, well, I have to admit, that's just goddamn delicious. And it's, 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 oh God, I loved it. I loved it. Yeah. That's awesome. I don't, I don't want to say you're screwed because you get, you still get the California. See, that was the only way I could do California. Right. Was to be the TV writer. So yeah, I totally feel you. Um, so you, you made a very good choice thing. of moving there. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, let me throw a last thing at you here. Um, okay. Here's a big, it's a big one though. So we, we, we've alluded to, uh, the things that carried him, um, many, many times. Obviously the, one of my actually favorite books is the, the, well, from back in the day was the things they carried Tim O'Brien book. Uh, um, fabulous book. He's so good. I'm ridiculously good. Um, ridiculous. When you're writing this story and you're deep, 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 deep into it, um, when do you know, when do you know it's going to be good? Like you said, you, you, you sort of came, became aware that this would be the peak of your writing career, that this was the story that was going to be the story of your career. Do you know it when you're done and the final word is written or are you midway through and you're like, this is, this is it. This is the story. I am writing the story. Uh, I would, I didn't know midway through that it was going to be the best thing I did. I did know that it was, you know, it's going to be good. I feel like, you know, it's going to be good when you're reporting it. I feel like there's a point in the reporting where you go, where you get, some piece of information or someone, yeah, get some interview and you go, Oh shit, I got, I remember that feeling of like, I got one on the line. Like now it's supposed to be not to screw this up. Like I've got the material. Uh, and that, and then that, yeah, I would sort of know. And then part of my like strategy was I would call Peter up and I would give him some like perfect little anecdote. I would be like, Hey, Oh man, Peter, I just found this out. And in my way, that was my way of him getting, getting him excited about the story in advance. And also like, he's like maybe mentally like, Oh, well, we could carve out a little more space for this one. You know, that was like my, that was my, like, I got one on the line. Um, and I, yeah, I feel like I got a pretty good sense of when one was going to be good. That one I knew like in the writing pretty late because I was so panicked about, uh, how long it was. <laughs> it was just like, I was like, right. Oh my God, like I could turn this in and Peter could say, you know, we said 6,000 words for a reason. Like, that's all we can take. And I, I didn't know how that was going to, I was like, well, what happens then? So this, they had this sort of latent anxiety. The word count was sort of terrifying on that thing. Um, yeah, I, I, I wrote that story was so big that I would write sections when I had the material, like I wrote it out of order. Um, and I knew I had mapped out that there was going to be like 13 sections of the journey. And I wrote the first one, which was like in the middle. Uh, it was the flight from Dover to Seymour. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wrote it in Delaware. Uh, I was, I was, I was sitting in various locations in Delaware writing that, that section and it came out to be like 2000 words. And I was like, 2000 words times 13. Oh no. 
Uh, so it wasn't this feeling of like triumph or anything during it. It was like, Oh shit. But then when it came out and you know, the one part of this business, any kind of creative business that you can't control is like how people respond to things. Um, and how like subjects respond to things and how the public responds to something like you can write something with all your heart. And then, I mean, I don't know about you, like it's as bad ethically, I think journalistically that like, I sometimes care a little bit about what a subject thinks about a story. Like I don't want them to be sad. Uh, sure. I mean, unless they just, if they deserve it, they're the devil. Then I want them to feel fucking wrong when they read my story. But like, if, if they're good people, you know, like Gail, Joey's mom, like I would have been absolutely stricken if she had been upset with the story. Um, and she responded so well to it and, and, it, and the, it, you know, it received a lot of attention and it got read, which is the other great fear when you write a story like that is that no one's going to look at it. Um, and that part you can't control. And, and that, that's the thing that like, in a way is like, makes you realize what you did. Um, and so that, that idea that it was like the most important thing I'd, I'll ever do sort of came in stages. And the last stage was the response. Um, right. There's nothing you can do to control that stuff. Like that's the, that's the, that's the hardest part of the business. I think is learning to let go of that. Like how people take it. Cause you, you can't you just do your best and hope it works. But like, like this TV show, man, I hope everybody watches it. I don't have any control over that. You just make the best thing you can. Right. That's all you can do really. Um, that's all you can do. You're writing this book and you're like, yeah, and it comes out and people watch, you know, it's like, what do you do? Yeah. Um, and then you wonder why that one guy gave you one star on Amazon and you fret over it. And then you find his email address and then you email him and he doesn't respond. <laughs> and you email him again and you say, listen, asshole. And then you find out he's a Trump supporter and then you challenge him to a fight and then you end up in jail. But- <laughs> it sometimes scares me and it should scare you actually. Um, uh, okay. This is going to come out weirder than I want it to probably. Um, you should be alarmed by how much of me I see in you and vice versa. I think it's, I, I, yeah, you should be, I think we're both just hugely fucked up people and it's, and, and, (laughs) and (laughs) it's, it's like, it's like, Talking to you sometimes, man, is like, it's like being Icarus. Like, I'm going to get off this. I'm, I've really enjoyed this phone call, but I'm going to get off this phone and I'm going to fall into the river and I'm. Don't do, it. Know. Don't do it. No, Don't it's do fine. It. No, it's like, oh my God, that thing you just outlined. Like, I have plotted the demise of strangers on the internet. Uh, I wish there was a picture of me. I'm sitting here on my couch now. I've, I've migrated and my face my hand is over my eyes because I can't bear to look at some of the things I've done with my life. Um, that whole scenario, you just, oh, Jesus, that's an episode of black mirror, by the way, you should write an episode of black. Hey, you want to get in the TV thing? You just, yeah. you just, you just, you just wrote an episode of black mirror. So funny. Do it. Yeah. Nobody's stopping you. No, I can't think of, uh, I have to, I have to watch games, game seven of 2002. <laughs> so, Talk to me in a month when I'm done. When I'm done trying to figure out if Lottie Divac flopped too much, then we can. Uh... It's like this is a Bruder film. You're like, did he or did he? Yeah. Back and to the left. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, we all make choices, buddy. We all make choices. Yeah. No, please. I, uh, could be much. I actually, the funny thing is, I freaking love it and hate it. You know, it's like, 
I, I'll tell you what, I always use this analogy. When I was in college, I had a girlfriend and she once gave me this back scratch. I was sick. She gave me a back scratch. And this is going to sound weird, but I swear to God, I think of it all the time. She had long fingernails and it was the best and worst back scratch I've had ever. <laughs> and at the end, she took a picture of my back and it was all bloodied. And the other night, my son, my son is 12. And he said to me, I was like, God, writing, blah, blah, blah. It's so freaking torturous. He's like, why do you do it? And I was like, because it wouldn't be, it wouldn't, the joy of the 20% wouldn't exist without the nightmare of the 80%. Like that's right. the whole fucking bullshit of it all is like, you need the 80% awful for the 20%, you know? So this is, we diverge. This is where we diverge in the woods. Okay. Go ahead. Cause I think it's a hundred percent awesome. Awesome. I love all. I love all of it. I don't even I don't the nightmare. Love, yeah. Cause it's like, I love, I just, I never understood people who hated writing. Oh. Like, and I never understood writer's block. I was oh, always that, like, no, I'm okay with. Well, because you don't allow plumbers to get plumbers block. Like what the fuck? And it's like, yeah. it's, 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 it's such a ridiculous way to make a living. Like it's such a, like, look at what you do, Jeff. You're watching old clips of basketball. You're going to write a book that you can hold in your hands, put on the shelf. Someone's going to give you money to do that. I agree. It's amazing. It's wait, amazing. Wait, but wait, time out. I can't let you get away with this. So, so you're saying I'm talking about, I'm talking about, I'm in Starbucks. Just as an example, I'm in Starbucks yesterday and I agree with you about writer's block. I've never, but they, you get tired. Like there are times you get, you get tired. tired. Of course you, you get tired. Sure. You get tired. All yeah. right. So you're in Starbucks. And it's your, your 12th hour sitting in front of a screen and the, it just doesn't, what you've written just kind of sucks. And you're this part, you're just not that inspired by, I just find those moments kind of miserable. That's what I'm saying. Sometimes you're, I was doing a book edit last week and I was like, boy, I'm done reading this book. I've read it a thousand times. It's not, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm finished, but it's, but, but, but compared to what, I am such a stupid man that if writing didn't exist, yeah, like I, my life would be terrible. And so it's like, like for me, it's just, for me, it's always been kind of an inside joke where it's like, it's insane that I get to do this and that anyone gets to do this. It's ridiculous. And the TV writing was like the apex of that. Cause that's like, those aren't even real people. Right. Like you're writing That's stories funny. about made up people. Like it's, 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 it's just, it's storytelling. It's fairy tales. It's, it's, uh, who gets paid to do that? Right. It's ridiculous. And so, you, so for me, the writing thing has always been, I've never understood people complaining about writing. Actually, I get, you know, what's funny is when I was at Sports Illustrated, I don't know. Did you know John Wertheim at all at SI? I know who you're talking about. Obviously I've never yeah. met him. I don't think. Yeah. So great writer and good friend of mine. And, and he used to have this expression where he would say, um, of certain athletes, he'd be like, they're in on it. Like they're in, in on it. And what he meant, which I always thought was kind of funny. And, and the athletes I love the most was, you know, like a guy like, uh, who was in on it? Like Sean Green of the Dodgers, right? He was yeah. aware of the fact that I'm getting paid $14 million a, a year to wear pajamas and take a mm. wood stick and swing it at an object. Like the joke is, it is, I agree with you. It is preposterous that we actually get paid. Like, this is what we're getting paid to do. It's like some mm -hmm. cosmic joke. And I, I, I do think it is easy to lose track of how preposterously joyful it is. So you're right. It is. I would say, I, I, I mean, I, the one 
So one thing I can say about like I've had ups and downs and bad parts of my life and good parts of my life and blah, blah, blah. I never lost my love of like I've been tired and blah, blah, blah. But writing in some shape or form, I will always do it because I love it. Yeah. Like I'm like, I'm sitting down at the table this morning. I've had a couple of days off because the book edit is in. It's not coming back to me until Tuesday. I thought, oh, kind of indulge. And this is like day three or four. And my girlfriend goes, you're missing writing, aren't you? Hmm. And I was like, yeah, I am. Took three days. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's what I'm supposed to do. And it makes me happy that I get to do it. So I'm the luckiest guy. Like it's, I don't know. And yeah, you built your universe. Like this world, like you left. Newsday and you decide you're gonna write books and you wrote one and then you got to write another and it was successful enough that you got to write another and now you're on book twenty eight and it's like that's you get all the credit for that in the world. Like that's that's a hard knock to do. Like I I honestly give you tons of credit for the career that you've made for yourself, but like but never lose sight of the fact that that you're getting paid to watch Two thousand and two, <laughs> you know, like it's, it's 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 ridiculous. It's ridiculous. I feel like there's something there's something hanging over this whole interview, and I'm just gonna say it. Um, the Kings should have used Bobby Jackson more in in that series. <laughs> it just really was a mistake. Adelman had him on the bench. I don't understand it to this day. I don't understand it. I'm, I know you're I'm so pleased. That we know we went on this long and winding road to reach a couple of truths. One was that it's great that Hall and Oates found each other. And how they did, I don't know that story, but it's wonderful. And that some person, I don't even know who you're talking about. Who? Bobby Jackson? Uh, Bobby Jackson, former Minnesota Gopher, uh, point guard. Yeah. Should have been in Good there. Gravy. No, you know, know, Doug Christie, Doug Christie cracked under the pressure. Bobby Jackson was ready to go. It's oh, I know who Doug Christie is because he was a Toronto Raptor briefly, I think. He was indeed. Uh, 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 Bobby Jackson, I'm not familiar with, but I, I agree with your assessment. I remember those finals. I don't. And Bobby Jackson. <laughs> So the mystery of Bobby Jackson's time on the bench is clearly uh, worthy of its own story, its own book. Or maybe a TV series. It's only going to be a, maybe a TV series. Buddy, you should wish. We're in. Um, well, Chris, I uh, this has been one of my favorites. Seriously. Huge fan. Episode 108. Like, you know, yeah. Yeah, 108. Had to keep it 108 because 108 obviously represents the uniform numbers of, the combined uniform numbers of uh, Rick Cerrone and Yogi Berra, former Yankee catchers. That's how I remember uh, numbers. Well, and I'll, and I'll tell you something else that's a little slightly cosmic because I believe in these things. Uh, my first, so when you write an episode of television, uh, the season is the first number. So season one is one. Uh, I wrote the eighth episode of Away, episode 108. Oh, is my first, is my first episode of, uh, of television. And so, uh, so there you go. 108. That's what it was supposed to yeah. be. There you go. Dreams come true. Uh, yep. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for doing this, man. Seriously. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Me too. No, it's super fun. Good to talk to you. I want to thank today's guest, Chris Jones, for joining me on Two Riders Slinging Yang. You can follow Chris on Twitter at Enswell Jones. That's E-N-S-W-E-L-L Jones. This podcast is sponsored by 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise. You can visit the website at 503-sports.com. One can listen to Two Riders Slinging Yang on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. Reviews are always appreciated. Music is by the dazzling MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me. And remember, keep writing.